If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Acts chapter 20. This morning, Acts chapter 20. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning of Acts chapter 20. be reading from the English Standard Bible this morning, the English Standard Version. After the uproar ceased, the uproar, of course, referring back to chapter 19 um, of what had just transpired where uh, folks were, were going to... Um, a riot had taken place and that sort of thing. So it's saying after that uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean and Paris uh, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians and Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul abroad there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite to Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to, set, to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. I've titled this message, How to Change the World. Have you ever thought to yourself as a Christian, I would like to do something different I know I have I know there have been plenty of times in my life where I felt like 
There just has to be more to the Christian life than this. I know I want my life to count. I know I want to make a difference for Christ. I mean, I've asked myself this convicting question time and time again. And if I'm honest, there are times that this question bothers me. Will Washington, Illinois be any different because I have lived here? Will it be different because I've served as a pastor of First Baptist Church of Washington? Will I have an impact? To be honest, I'm not sure that I like the answer to that question just yet. I pray that God would use me here at this church to bring change. I pray that His glory would be seen in me and through me. And I pray that things would be different because I have lived here. The Apostle Paul changed the world. He did it in a day before there were airplanes, before there were trains or automobiles. Everywhere he went was on foot, or maybe he rode a donkey or even a camel. He had to take ships to places. There was no fast way of travel. He had no phone. He had no internet. He could not send a text message to someone across town and tell them, hey, let's get together, let's meet up. If he had something to say, he had to walk across town to say it. What's more, he spent many years of his ministry in prison. He had opposition both on the inside of the church and on the outside of the church. And yet after 25 to 30 years of ministry, he changed the world. Paul was a leader. The application form of a certain college contained the question, are you a leader? One student pondered the question for a long time in view of her high school record, which contained no athletic or scholarly achievements and no student offices. She honestly answered the inquiry, no. During the waiting period, which always accompanies an application process, the young woman wondered often whether she would have or should have adjusted the facts slightly and answered the question a little differently. Much to her amazement, a letter arrived from the register's office with the following message. Welcome to our college. A study of our application forms for next year shows that we have 1,452 leaders in the freshman class, and they will certainly need at least one follower. <laughs> How did Paul change the world? Well, we could say that God sovereignly used Paul to accomplish this, and that would be a true statement. And I know that we all see different results when it comes to ministry, because that is the way the Lord has designed it. However, I believe this morning we can learn from the Apostle Paul. We can see what Paul did, and we can apply those principles to our own lives. No matter how we are gifted, no matter what our calling is, God can use us. Let me just say at the outset, at the heart of everything that Paul did was not only the establishment of the church, but to strengthen the church. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. The church is the only institution that is protected by God and that will not fail. 
Jesus said the gates of hell will not even be able to prevail, prevail against the church. Paul preached the gospel. He saw people converted. And those people would start churches and they would evangelize in their area. And they would train and send out others to do evangelism and start new churches. And Paul was greatly committed to the church. And when we look at this text this morning, it would be easy to skim over everything and say, oh, we just have this kind of travel itinerary of Paul and not realize some of the details of this time are, are written in First and Second Corinthians as well as in Romans. It might be easy to read this and think it does not speak to us. In fact, many commentaries seem to break this down um, and, and kind of uh, have just a couple little notes over it and skip over the rest of it. However, I believe we see here how committed Paul was to the church and in his commitment, we see Paul changing the world. Let me say this, no matter how you are gifted, if you are not committed to the church of Jesus Christ, we will not see God use us to change the world for him. If we want to change the world, point number one, if we want to change the world, we must be committed to the local church and meet on Sundays for worship and instruction. If we want to change the world, we must be committed to the local church and meet on Sundays for worship and instruction. Now back in Acts chapter 16, Luke had stopped saying we when he was writing because Luke was no longer with Paul. And now here in chapter 20, verse 5, we see that Luke reveals that he is once again with Paul. This is most likely because Luke had been left to pastor that new church that they had started in Philippi. And now he gives us an eyewitness testimony because he's traveling with Paul to Troas and to Jerusalem. And I want to look at some of the details of the church meeting in Troas because it lends aid to our first point. First, I want us to see this at that church meeting in Troas. First, the church met on Sunday. The church met on Sunday. Now, I know that there are many arguments floating around as to when the church met and what day they should meet on, etc. But we have recorded for us here the earliest clear reference to the custom of the church and how it gathered on the first day of the week rather than on the Jewish Sabbath, which would have been a Saturday. Some scholars look at this and say this is not really a big deal because this was a special service in every way. Or they will say that we do not have anywhere in scripture where it is commanded for the church to meet on Sundays. And they would be right in saying that. Some go so far as to say this meeting really took place on a Saturday night. It wasn't a Sunday at all. Well, let's look at what it says. It seems clear that Luke is using the Roman method for time, which started the day at midnight. And therefore, this service took place on Sunday night. We know this because Paul intended to leave the next day. And we know the next day did come at daybreak according to verse 11 as we read this. Because Paul is still talking with them and daybreak is an indication as the next day has started. That's what it says in verse 11. It shows us that Luke was using the Roman method of time because under the Jewish method of time, daybreak would have been the same day as the previous night. 
This all-night church meeting took place on a Sunday night. Now you might say, well, big deal. What's the difference? Does it make a difference when we meet? Why can't church just be whatever day we want church to be? It makes a difference because at some point, a switch was made from Saturday worship to Sunday worship. And this which was made because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb which occurred on a Sunday morning. There's no other explanation for why the Jews who were the predominant Christians of the day, members of the early churches who had been for centuries meeting on a Saturday because it was commanded by God to worship on the seventh day Why would they change worship to the first day of the week? The only reasonable explanation is simple. Who do we worship in the church? We worship the Lord Jesus Christ. They also worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And what day did he rise from the dead? He rose from the dead on Sunday. Therefore, The Sunday worship is an evidence and a testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as it should be today. Now with that said, I don't believe that we are under the Old Testament law regarding the Sabbath day. I do not hold to the idea that since Sunday replaced the Sabbath that Christians are required to follow Jewish law regarding the Sabbath. I believe scripture teaches us this in Colossians chapter 2. This is what it says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There are, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath is a shadow of the things to come, which is Christ. Christ has come. The substance is here. He is the fulfillment of what has transpired. However, with that said, I do not believe that we should, or I do believe that we should set aside the first day of every week as the Lord's Day in order to gather with God's people for worship and instruction in his word. Why do we gather for worship? Worship of who? Jesus Christ and him alone. Why else do we gather? For instruction. Instruction of what? Instruction in the word of God. Not instruction in pop culture or something else. Now Sunday was not a day off in the Roman Empire. And so the church met on Sunday evening. What we need to make sure we are doing as a people is setting aside time for gathering with the church on Sunday to worship the resurrected Jesus Christ and Him only because it is His day. That's why it's called the Lord's Day. It is the Lord's Day. We we should not have divided loyalties when we enter the church. And when we do this, when we gather together and we worship the Lord, we are a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. Secondly, we, the church, worshipped, or the church worshipped the crucified and risen Lord. The church didn't come together to worship anything or anyone else but the crucified and risen Savior, period. 
Paul said they gathered to break bread, which was preference to the Lord's Supper. Weekly observance of communion is not commanded, though it did seem to be the custom of the early church. And honestly, I wouldn't have a problem with practicing communion on a weekly basis. It makes us examine ourselves to make sure that we have confessed our sin to the Lord and that we're in right standing with Him and with one another. And I believe that it's healthy. It causes us to see our need for His grace and we are drawn closer to Him. And and those are both good things as well. Again, they worship the crucified and risen Savior. This is not a time to sing about ourselves when we come together. It's not a time to sing about anything else for that matter, but it's a time to sing about Jesus Christ. This is not a time to study ourselves and and kind of, oh, well, I better study humanistic culture and see uh, about humanism. But it's a time to study the Word of God and what God has revealed in His Scripture about Jesus Christ. This is why we need to make sure that all our singing and all of our preaching and all of our teaching and everything that goes on within the church is focused on Jesus Christ. That's why we gather. Thirdly, the church met for instruction in God's word. It seems clear that Paul taught until midnight. So Paul taught for four hours or longer. Then Eutychus bit the dust out the window. And he went back upstairs afterwards and he talked with them longer. There's a different Greek word used here indicating that uh, after he went back upstairs, he had more of a conversation about the things of God until they saw daybreak. Look back at verse 1. We see Paul calling his disciples. And what does it say he does with his disciples? It says that he encourages them. Then look at verse 2. Luke says that he had given the churches around Macedonia, what? Much encouragement. Much encouragement. This is the job of the church to bring encouragement through the word of God. In Acts chapter 2, the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. In Acts chapter 6, deacons were appointed so the apostles could be devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. Paul commanded Timothy and 1 Timothy to preach the Word. It is sad to see how the Word of God is neglected in the church today. I'm not saying that we should hear a four-hour sermon every Sunday. Or that we should preach until someone falls out of a window. I'm not saying that. I know you all are thankful for that. I'm sure you think, Pastor, you go long enough. But look at the church. They were willing to stay up the entire night just to hear the Apostle Paul. However, in the midst of his sermon, a young man named Eutychus fell asleep. And then he falls out of the third story window. Interesting enough, the name Eutychus means fortunate. Doesn't sound real fortunate to fall out of the window. 
He perhaps was a slave who had worked the entire day. He's sitting in the window trying to fight off the sleep as he listens to Paul. It was warm. There are lanterns in the room. And he falls asleep. And out the window he went. And in verse 9 it says, He was taken up dead. Which is to say that they had tried to pick him up and he was dead. This young man fell asleep in church, fell out of window, and died. It makes me wonder about those who fall asleep in their spiritual security today. It also makes me wonder about those who never sleep in church because they never enter church in the first place because they think that they don't need church or they believe they are secure in their salvation and they won't fall out of a window, but they will one day fall into the depths of sin and hell and be lost forever. Paul went down. And what does the ESV say? It says that he bent over him. But that wording um, isn't probably the best wording because in the Greek it means that Paul fell upon him. Paul fell upon him and embraced him much like the prophets Elisha and Elijah had done when they raised young men back to life. Right after Paul lays on him he immediately announces, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. Paul nowhere draws attention to himself or what he has done. It is strange because Luke describes this so casually as you're reading it. We're almost left wondering what in the world just happened. Because it's like, oh, this guy fell out of the window and Paul goes down there and he was taken up dead and, and Paul puts him in his arms and says, don't be alarmed, folks. He's, he's still alive. And then Paul just goes right back upstairs and finishes what he's doing. It's like nothing happened. <clears throat> so casually described. We're, we're, what took place? Many scholars say that the boy wasn't even dead. Paul simply resuscitated him. Let's remember, folks, Luke is a doctor. And what's he say? He was dead. He's dead. Luke, Dr. Luke said the boy was dead. However, the emphasis is not on the miracle that Paul performed. Where's the emphasis at? On the teaching of the word of God. Which brings us to, to that point. The church met for instruction of the word of God. It was like the meeting was barely even interrupted because the word was of the utmost importance in this meeting. Additionally, there is, there is no evidence that Paul took the boy falling out of the window as a rebuke for teaching so long. Some people might say, well, see, Paul shouldn't have been teaching so long and that boy would have never fell out the window. Perhaps we should ask ourselves, what keeps me awake? Christians who can't stay awake in a 90-minute service manage to stay awake while they are watching the big game for multiple hours or stay awake while they're out fishing or while they're watching a movie. Often we do not even prepare ourselves for worship. We don't go to bed early the night before. In fact, we'll stay up as late as we possibly can. And we don't ask God to reveal to us what's in our heart when we're in the midst of the church. 
We don't focus on the Lord while we're there. I love what Spurgeon said about this passage of Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said, If we go to sleep during the sermon and die, there are no apostles to restore us. Church, listen closely because so often we miss this, but the main task of a shepherd is to feed the flock. That's the main task. Let me just say that that's not popular today. Today we sometimes think that the pastor's main job is to do everything but feed the flock. Additionally, it is not popular because the pastor sometimes does not have time to study, but the church may just want to a short snippet of a sermon, and we say, well, that younger generation, they can't listen that long anymore. Church, tiny sermons produce tiny Christians. Sermons that will not explore the scripture produces very little in the life of a believer. The church needs to have the solid food from the word of God in order to be healthy. This is why we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for recorrection, or for correction, and for training in righteousness. The word of God. We come together, we gather together for instruction in God's word. That's why we're here to listen, write down whatever, maybe you say, well, I don't, I don't learn from taking notes. And don't take notes, but come for instruction in the word of God to apply it to your life so that through his word, it says that his word pierces your heart. That through his word, you might be changed. Secondly, if we want to change the world, we must train godly men. If we want to change the world, we must train godly men. So often in the church, we don't train men. I've been in churches where the pastor has felt threatened, so he refuses to train men. Paul planned to travel from Greece to Israel. However, he learned of a plot by the Jews to kill him. Paul ends up going north by land to Macedonia, where he then took a ship, made stops along the coast of Asia. Luke rattles off the men who were traveling with Paul in verse 4. They were representatives from the local churches. Some of these men show up in other scriptures as well. Many of them were Gentiles that Paul had seen come to Christ through his preaching. He had spent time with them, teaching them and grounding them in the scriptures. Additionally, as we already looked at from the verses, one, one, uh, one Paul had for his, his um, disciples, he, he said he encourages his disciples. He had these followers that he encouraged. In fact, we know the strategy of Paul because he made it clear to Timothy. We know what his strategy was. You know what Paul told Timothy, young pastor Timothy? He said, Timothy, entrust the things of God to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That was his strategy. If you're here as a man, 
You should be asking the Lord to bring into your life men. Or if you're a woman, you should be asking the Lord to bring into your life younger women in the Lord who you can entrust the things of God to. We need to look for others that are faithful in their walk, who are available to spend time together and are teachable in their spirit. If you're younger in the Lord, this has nothing to do with age. If you are younger in the Lord, pray that God would bring someone that could do with you as Paul did with these men. Spend time with them, teaching them, doing life together. If you're older in the Lord, has nothing to do with age. You should be looking for men that you should be able to invest in. Regardless, we must train godly men. We need godly men who are willing to be trained. We must train godly men. Thirdly, if we want to change the world, we must be missionally focused. We must be missionally focused. I want you to stop and think about Paul for a moment. Think about how he focused on missions. Paul preached the gospel as far as he could while he was in Corinth for three months. He wrote the epistle to the Romans. Just look at this text. Paul leaves Ephesus goes to Macedonia, gives some encouragement, spends three months in Greece, was going to go to Syria, but changes his mind last minute, goes back to Macedonia, sends some of his people ahead to Troas, then goes to Philippi for five days, and then goes in, 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 uh, to Troas himself, uh, leaves Troas, sets sail for Jerusalem. Paul was missionary focused. Are you? Are you focused on missions? In all the letters that Paul writes, he makes it abundantly clear that he is, he is not strengthening the churches so that they can be a little country club. He does not give them much encouragement so that they can be some sort of little holy huddle in isolation from the lost world, but so that the church would fulfill its mission of preaching the gospel and in turn sending out workers to preach the gospel where Christ had yet to be preached. The church that makes the decision to be inward focused and not be missionally focused is a church that is dying and will soon be dead. That was good. I'm going to say it again. The church that makes the decision to be inward focused and not be missionally focused is a church that is dying and will soon be dead. We have to be missionally focused. How will we reach the lost for Christ? What will we do? Not just right here in Washington, Illinois, not even just in the state of Illinois, not even just in the United States of America, because the call is to go everywhere with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
our question should be, church, how will we reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ? You say, well, we're just a small little church. So what? Does, is that what the Lord says? Oh, uh, go and, and make disciples of all nations, but if you're a smaller church, don't worry about it. Is that what we read? No. Your question should be, how will I go? How will I get there? What will I do? If I can't go, how will I give to others that are going and willing to go? We have to be missionally focused. I'm excited that this summer, four of your people are going to Haiti to preach the gospel. Four. Myself, my daughter, Kelly Connard, and her daughter. Four of us going. You should question, how can I give? How can I give to that? If you can't go, how can you give? we want to change the world we must establish and strengthen the local church we must meet on Sunday for worship and instruction we must train godly men who will train others we must be missionally focused if we want to change the world we must embrace unity within a culturally diverse world if we want to change the world we must embrace unity within a culturally diverse diverse world the whole reason why Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem is because he has a collection that he has raised from the Gentile churches that he was trying to get to the poor saints in Jerusalem Paul had a desire to see any wall of separation between Jew and Gentile broken down he wanted to see the Jews come to know Christ. He had a great burden for them to the point that he said he was willing to be cut off from Christ if it meant their salvation. He felt that the love that was displayed in such a practical way by these Gentile churches by taking up this offering would be a powerful test testimony of the transformative nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jews and Gentiles were two different cultures. We have clearly seen this as we have studied the book of Acts. Guess what? We live in a culturally diverse world. Do you understand that not everyone thinks the way you think? Do you understand that not everyone behaves the way you behave? Do you know that not everybody is white, middle-class America? That might have made some of you mad. You're like, I'm upper-class. Okay, well, not everybody's white, upper-class America. Not everybody's like us. Guess what? People get tattoos. Sometimes they get these, what they call sleeves, and it's their full arm. I've seen some pretty cool ones. I don't have any tattoos. 
But I've seen some pretty nice artwork. People get tattoos. Guess what? People have multiple piercings. Some people get one in their nose or they get these huge, you know, things in their ears. Man, I don't, I don't like it. I'm not like, well, I'm going to go out and do that. I'm going to get one of those big, so my ears are real big. I'm not, that doesn't, I'm not like thrilled with that. That's not something I want to do. But people do it. People's culture are different than your culture. You know that probably even right here in Washington, Illinois, there are people that are from a different culture. Pulse culture was diverse as well. But even in the midst of a diverse culture, there was emphasis on unity with fellow believers. Church, the body of Christ is made up of many members from many backgrounds and from many nationalities and are diverse of spiritual gifts. Remember the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17? This is what Jesus said. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That they may all be one. He said, I don't ask just for these that I'm sending out. But I'm asking for those that will believe in what these people are saying. What my disciples are saying. Who will one day come to believe in me. I am asking, Father. This is what he says. That they may all be one. Now get this. That's a great prayer. But then he says this. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Church, we need to affirm fellow believers in Christ. We need to be united with them, whether they're Southern Baptist Convention or not. We can't even unite with our own brothers in the Southern Baptist Convention. People fighting one another over doctrinal issues and theological issues. If they truly know Christ as their Savior, we must show unity because we are one. And we demonstrate that unity by love. And if we wrongly divide, from other Christians over minor doctrinal issues or especially personal preference, we're in sin. However, at the same time, we must refuse to affirm unity with those who say they are followers of Christ but deny the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We unite with others based upon truth, not based upon falsehoods. This is why it's vital to call out false teaching. This is why it's vital to call out heresy. This is why it's vital to look at someone who's way off base theologically and say something about it. This is why there are certain things I refuse as a pastor to participate in when it involves churches that preach the gospel. Because they preach another gospel. In the words of Paul, that is not the gospel at all. And they're false teachers. And Paul says, let them be accursed in the Galatians chapter 1. So we don't unite on falsehood. We unite on truth. We're not called to unite with false teachers. But to divide from false teachers. So we have to be discerning. We must be careful who, who we unite with. We don't unite with Muslims or Hindus or other religions. We don't unite with those. We don't hate them, but we don't unite with them either. We don't say, oh, well, they just worship the same God. That's, that's kind of the big thing going around the internet these days. Well, Muslims worship the same God. No, they don't. No, they don't. We don't unite with false teaching. We are Christians. We unite with other Christians. Not even with those, we don't unite with those who say they are Christians, but they preach a different gospel which there's a lot of in the United States of America. We must be careful that, you, that we unite with those who hold to the essentials and separate those from those who deny the gospel of grace. Do you want to change the world? Do you want to make a difference? Do you want to have an impact? No, I do. Would you pray today? Maybe you would even pray right now. God, how do you want to use me to impact the world for Jesus Christ? <laughs> you know, the answers will not be the same for each of us because we have different gifts. We're from different circumstances. But I know this. God does not use us to do anything by accident. You have to seek his kingdom. And his righteousness. Every single day. You have to seek his kingdom not your kingdom his kingdom I also know this however God will use you to change the world for Christ he will not do it apart from your commitment to local church you see the church is what God uses to fulfill the great commission the church is what God uses to instruct us in the word of God. 
You must be committed to a local body of Christ where you can grow and use your gifts to serve him. Let me just be real honest with you this morning. And I know some people aren't going to like this. And I know that when some people probably hear it online, they're definitely not going to like it. And I know I run the risk of really upsetting some people and I have to live with that. But if the church is where we get our instruction from, and if the church is where we worship the crucified and risen Lord, and if God is not going to use us to change the world apart from us being active in the local church, then it is clear that many of us do, want, do not want to change the world. Because many of us are not active in the church. And I know you're probably thinking, well, pastor, don't you guilt trip me into being, being active in the church? Or are you saying I, try, I, I tried to be active once, and you know what happened? I got burned. Maybe you say, well, I even tried to be active right here in First Baptist Church. They burned me bad, pastor. They burned me bad. I understand that. I've been burned in the church. But you know what? I think I think of Paul. And I think, you know what? If I've been burned, then the apostle Paul has been scorched. The very people he led to Christ. Scorched by them. All you have to do is go read 2 Corinthians, folks. To know this. To know that they lit Paul up. Every single local church, including First Baptist Church, is made up of sinners. That's who we are. So guess what? You're going to get hurt. Because when you work closely with sinners, you get hurt. It's just the way it is. You get hurt in your marriage, right? Why? Because you're married to a sinner. It's just the way it is. I've been hurt in my marriage. My wife's been hurt. Because guess what? We're both sinners. The church is filled with sinners. That doesn't change the fact that the church is God-ordained. It is God's ordained means of teaching us how to love and live with one another. You don't need interpersonal qualities that come from Scripture if you live in isolation. But you need them when you're a sinner redeemed by the grace of God. You need to know humility and you need to know patience and you need to know kindness and you need to know gentleness and all these other qualities. Why? Because you are a sinner that's committed to work with other sinners for the one central cause of glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. And when you're among other sinners, that's what our call is to do. But not just glorify His name within the body of Christ, but so that you and I would glorify His name among the nations. You ask God, how do you want to use me to change the world? 
God, how do you want to use me to change the world? We have the initial response today. Commit to my church. And you will start. Commit to my church. And you will start. And guess what? If you're out there today and you say, Pastor, I I can't commit to First Baptist Church. You know what I'd tell you if you came into my office and you sat down and you said, Pastor, I can't commit to First Baptist Church. You know what I'd say to you? And go find a church where you can. It's not about this kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. And that's what I would say to you. Go find a church where you can. If you can't commit here, but you can commit somewhere else, then go there. And I'd say the same thing if somebody walked into me and said, I'm in this church and I can't, I can't commit there. And they, they say, I feel like I can commit here. I would say, well, come on, let's go. You want to change the world? You start by being committed to church. And God will use you to change the world just like he did the Apostle Paul. Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. Maybe this morning as you've heard this message, you've you've heard the Lord speak to you and speak to your conscience in some way. Maybe it's you need to be committed to the local church this morning. Maybe that's been revealed to you and you're not committed and and you need to do that. Maybe you need to, to embrace unity. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not missionally focused or or whatever. Maybe you're saying, I need to start training godly men. Or, or maybe I'm a, a younger person in Christ and I need to find someone to train me. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you in some way, shape, or form this morning. Spoken to your conscience. I want you to know I'll be standing right down front. If you need prayer, you need somebody to pray with you. You don't have to come. You can pray in your pew. But if, if you'd like that, I want, I want you to know I'm willing to pray with you. If you need to make a decision for Christ this morning, you need to say, Lord... Uh, for the first time I understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the way for me to start to change the world is to come to know Christ as my Savior. If that's you this morning, I'll be standing down here. I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe that's you. However he's spoken to you, I just pray that you'd be willing to come and pray this morning or pray in your pew. Let's bow for a time of prayer.